Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. If you want to grow solar in the U.S., a 30% tariff doesn't help. We'll think about what the big new tariff means for solar. Every year, the economic elite meet in Davos, Switzerland. Oxfam takes the opportunity to release its annual report on income inequality. We'll go over the latest eye-popping statistics in their report, Reward Work, Not Wealth. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. The Solar Energy Industries Association estimates the Trump administration's 30% tariff on imported solar panels would kill a lot of installated-related jobs around the world, around the United States, installing panels. The estimate is around 23,000 jobs this year. The solar manufacturing jobs that the tariff might help won't make up the difference since there's now only around 2,000 jobs in solar manufacturing. But the success of solar is a little more nuanced than just a manufacturer's versus installer's deal. We are going to talk about it now with John Rogers. He is a senior energy analyst for the Union of Concerned Scientists. He's on the line with us. Nice to talk with you, John. Great to be with you, Jerome. And Lisa Albrecht is here. She is a uh, systems specialist with Solar Service, Inc. They have been doing solar in this community for 40 years. Great to see you, Lisa. Thanks for having me back. Um, John, I wonder what you can, what you thought when you heard that the tariff was 30%. They've been talking about this, and this case has been rolling through for some time now. Um, what was your gut reaction to that? You know, I, I didn't know what to expect. We have, we clearly, uh, we've got a president who was hungry for tariffs. He's very clear that he said, you know, bring me tariffs. I want, I want to put tariffs on. And he's, and he's no friend of, of clean energy, so it could have come down anywhere. You know, we had the recommendation uh, from the U.S. International Trade Commission last fall, uh, and it was really up to the president to decide. So 30%, so it's 30% the first year, 25% the next year, 20% the year after that, and then 15%. And, uh, you know, it's sort of... Uh, it struck me as sort of the worst of both worlds. It's it's high enough that it's gonna you know we've got incredible solar momentum in this in this country and we've had you know for for years now it may been making incredible progress. So the thirty percent, even if it's for that one year, uh, it's probably high enough to uh, sort of knock things off kilter. You know, hit hit our momentum. Uh, it's not high enough, though, to really get a whole lot of U.S. manufacturing started. And just started. to so again, it's it's the worst of both worlds. In talking about U.S. manufacturing, when I was surprised when I read about who was doing it, and and none of the top ten panel makers are from the U.S. in the world. Um, and the panel makers that are here are kind of niche manufacturers, and they do kind of odd things, and they are not very big. 
Well, we have we have first solar, which is a large uh, and and not really covered by that. That is, this covers a particular type of of panel made from crystal and silicon. First solar. Uh, which is a U.S.-based company, U.S. manufacturer, makes things a different way. So they, you know, there are companies like that that will stand to benefit from this, and there, there are some manufacturers of crystalline solar products, so cells or modules, panels, um, that will benefit at the margins. But the real question is, what's what's the long-term vision here? Because this is again, this is not, this is not the kind of uh, if you're looking for walls of protectionism, these aren't going to be high enough, and I'm certainly not recommending those, but these aren't going to be high enough to really to see a, a new operation get started. Um, so it's, it's really, uh, you know, you've got to really wonder what's, you know, what, what this is going to do in terms of those companies and, and potential investors. Lisa Albrecht, what did you think when you heard the 30% number? You're someone who is on the ground doing solar all the time in uh, people's homes and communities. Was that a a big number for you, or are you, are you braced for this? Well, we were certainly hoping for a lower percentage. Um, the, uh, the, the International Trade Commission had a range of responses, and this was towards the top. It wasn't the worst, um, but it wasn't the best. Um, and so we were already kind of anticipating running numbers over the last 24 hours. I think it's going to maybe increase, although the tariff is for 30% in year one, bottom line to a homeowner that's looking at adding solar, it might add about 10% to the cost. That's where we were a couple years ago. It's not catastrophic. It's not great. Um, you know, so we're very lucky here in Illinois because we did just recently pass legislation that will pave the way to um, very uh, predictable and determined incentives called a renewable energy credit. So we're better positioned than most states. Um, but it's difficult, to, as John pointed out, to look at the numbers and just try to make common sense of it. Uh, the policy here just does not add up. It just appears it's the fossil fuel cabinet that he has has appointed around him, uh, pushing an agenda to slow clean energy growth. Are there any solar manufacturers in Illinois? Uh, not to my knowledge. We do have some supply chain, though, um, you know, different components, wires, conduit. Um, you know, there are different aspects of the installation that are here. So we do have ancillary services in Illinois. Um, John Rogers, is, are there other uh, U.S. providers here that um, are looking at this in, uh, I mean, you mentioned that it just doesn't seem like it's going to create jobs in the manufacturing sector. Yeah, the, the important thing, I mean, Lisa makes makes great points there. Uh, one of those is thinking about the solar industry as a whole. So if you think about uh, the, the solar, the U.S. solar industry is about so much more than manufacturing. So the, the calculation for 2016 was we had something like 260,000 people working in the U.S. solar industry. Of those, 15% are in manufacturing, and of those, a small fraction, you know, I think you said the 2,000 people working in, in solar manufacturing. So, you know, if you look at this, if you look at the breadth of the U.S. solar industry, you got to be thinking about where are the jobs. You think about Lisa and her company. You think about, so you think about service, think about uh, maintenance or financing or project development, all these other things or other types of manufacturing that aren't the solar cells or the solar panels. That's really, you know, you want to look at the breadth of the solar industry. If you're trying to make an intervention in in things to to help 
uh, I'm really not sure this is this is the way you would have gone gone about it. One of the things I never really think about with solar, but seems to be happening more and more, are these large installations where utilities and other organ or other solar organizations are are trying to make a bunch of solar energy and sell it to a community. Uh, and I imagine this would hurt those people who are out there trying to buy ten thousand panels or something like that. Uh, I'll take that, John. So, uh, yes, uh, when when you're looking at those you, those huge, large installations, the panel cost is a much bigger part of that investment. And so, when when we're looking at uh, fields and fields of solar, which is what is on the way here in Illinois, including what's called community solar. Not every rooftop is a good fit, but community solar is an opportunity to put, for example, you know, in a brownfield where we've already polluted it, uh, thousands and thousands of panels. And so, the component cost will be a bigger part of that. Um, um, it's estimated that it will slow the, the progress of those projects down um, by upwards around four years or so. Um, but we're still very optimistic that it's going to happen in here in Illinois. That you know, jobs are not as much of a part of of those uh, installations. Jobs really are a part of residential and local installations, uh, as John was pointing out. John, did you do you have some reaction about the big projects being uh, smaller in the future? Uh, Lisa, Lisa made a great point earlier that you know when we think about a thirty percent tariff on on imports of solar panels and solar cells, that doesn't translate into a thirty percent increase in the in the price across across the board. It does, though, affect the large scale systems more because panels are a bigger piece of those systems. As Lisa said, there's you know there's more labor in, in residential. You know, if you think about your rooftop system, that sort of thing. Uh, so it's certainly going to affect the larger systems more. Uh, that said, residential, you know, where we're seeing residential, you know, there are so many markets, so many parts in the U.S. where solar is now cheaper or just as good a deal as buying electricity from your utility. Uh, you know, near Chicago, you look at Wisconsin, for example, as, as some of these markets are just at that tipping point. Uh, and what this is going to do is, is, as Lisa says, push things back a year, two years, four years, whatever. Uh, and what, and, and that's really coming at a time when we need to be, we need to be moving forward on all cylinders, on solar, on other clean energy technologies, not just for the sake of, certainly for the sake of our environment, but also for the sake of those jobs, the real clean energy jobs that come with, come with moving these industries forward. John Rogers is with the Union of Concerned Scientists. Lisa Albrecht is with Solar Service, Inc. They've been servicing this community for 40 years in solar. Uh, To go right down to the people who are trying to make a decision about solar right now, if you sit down with them, Lisa, do they um, hear they've heard all this verbiage in the media about 30% increase, 30% increase, 30% increase? uh, are they scared or do you you don't label them with a 30% increase at the, their total cost won't be that Right. We've been prepping our customers for, you know, the potential that this is coming. Uh, it's only been 24 hours, so we haven't yet seen the trickle down all the way from the manufacturers and to see what the, you know, the bottom price tag is. But, you know, what's funny is that 
every single day our phone rings because of the environment. But customers sign the contract because of the economics. And they were signing contracts three years ago because of the economics. As John pointed out, solar makes sense. It's commonly cheaper than any other source of energy. And frankly, it's a really great way for people who are you know, frustrated that the U.S. has left the Paris Accord, people who are looking for a way that they can protest, um, that they can clean up their energy supply. Solar is a way to do it. So I would encourage people to, you know, it, it might add another year to your payback. That's nothing when you think of the fact that these systems last for 30 years. So it's a blip in the road. Um, I think people should vote with their money. I think that, you know, when we look at solar, when you poll voters, solar and wind is popular with 80 percent of the base. That is all voters, Republican, Democrat, independent Voters are unanimously in favor of clean energy, uh, and and this is just you know just a blip in the road. Stay focused, like everything else, like Indivisible says all the time. Stay focused on your goals. Vote with your money, and you know continue to pursue those answers. John, are you still optimistic about solar? Uh, the the federal tax credit runs for another four years. There's uh, there's good reason to think that it's just going to keep growing, no matter if there's a thirty percent tariff or not. I, yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think this this does represent a, a bump in the road. You know, this is turbulence. This isn't this isn't the airplane going down or whatever analogy you want to use. Uh, what this does mean is, as Lisa said, you know, homeowners homeowners are making decisions all the time. Not all of them, you know, they're not always doing the economics uh, doing it solely because of the economics. Homeowners like solar because. Uh, you know, they like it for the economics. They like it for the environmental aspects. They like it because of energy security. They like the notion of of supporting U.S. energy development. So homeowners stepping up, I, I think we're, we're going to need to see states stepping up with policies like the one Lisa mentioned that Illinois has in place that says, yes, we want solar. Yes, we want more of this. We get that this is important for so many reasons. I think corporations have been a major purchaser of solar in recent years. I think corporations are going to have to, uh, as Lisa says, accept, you know, the, the payback might be a little longer. And, and so we can, so we can push push through this. Uh, again, it's a bump in the road. This is, it's an incredibly vibrant industry. Uh, we're going to see more of that. But the Trump administration certainly seems to favor the fossil fuels industries. Um, but th- do you see in Washington uh, something happening in four years from now where they would want to do away with the tax credits, do away with, uh, make a larger attack on solar? You know, the amazing thing, one of the amazing things about this particular battle over the tariffs was the reaction from across across the spectrum uh, that we saw. We saw Republicans, we saw Democrats uh, coming out in opposition to to strong tariffs. We saw, you know, the, the Heritage Foundation, Sean Hannity on Fox News saying, yeah, don't do it. Wall Street Journal weighing in saying, not a good idea. Uh, governors of both both parties. Uh, so and and certainly the solar industry as a whole uh, weighing in against us. So I think it's it's uh, it's been really interesting to see the kind of bedfellows that an opportunity like this or a challenge like this creates. And I think we could see more of that. As Lisa said, solar is incredibly po- uh, popular. People get, I think, increasingly that it's a that it's a major creator of jobs in this country. One in fifty jobs in 2016. One in fifty new jobs was around solar. So uh, I don't think, 
you know, when there was in the in the in the tax debate uh, last month, when there was some when there was some pushback on or when there were some moves to mess with the solar tax credit and the wind tax credit, you saw bipartisan opposition to that, and it didn't make it into the final package. I think that's a testament to to people understanding how how important clean energy and how important solar energy in particular are. Lisa, is there anything you're worried about there out there in the horizon? You know, just the the frustration that I have that you know that we are we we cannot run fast enough towards solutions right now. That should be our entire focus. We should be running as fast as we can to clean up our energy supply, to clean up our transportation, to clean up our food, um, and and it's it's very frustrating that this is slowing that down. Um, but people should not lose heart. They should continue to make sure that their legislators know that clean energy should be top of American policy. Uh, and, you know, and continue to support those efforts. Lisa Albrecht is a system specialist with Solar Service, Inc. They've been providing solar energy in this community for 40 years. John Rogers is a senior energy analyst for the Union of Concerned Scientists. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about uh, the reaction to the Trump administration's 30% tariff on imported solar panels. Thank you very much. Great to talk with you, Jerome. Thank you so much. Economic growth is up, so is inequality. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about Oxfam's annual report on the state of inequality. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Folks get brown in the sunshine. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Every year, world leaders meet at Davos. Last year, Xi Jinping stole the show with a stout defense of free trade. This year, Donald Trump's attending and is expected to declare the U.S. open for business and do some economic chest thumping like this. When I say that the stock market is at an all-time high, we've picked up in market value almost $4 trillion since November 8th, which was the election. Four trillion dollars. It's a lot of money. Personally, I picked up nothing, but that's all right. Everyone else is getting rich. That's okay. I'm I'm very happy. But growth doesn't necessarily mean that inequality is decreasing. And the latest report on inequality from Oxfam notes that places like Nigeria have steady economic growth and a steady growth in the poverty rate at the same time. Their report is called Reward Work, Not Wealth, and with me to talk about it is Paul O'Brien. He is Oxfam America's Vice President for Policy and Campaigns. Thanks for joining us, Paul. 
Happy to be here. And also with me in the studio is Jeffrey Winters, professor of comparative politics and political economy at Northwestern. And he is the founder and director of Northwestern's Equality Development and Globalization Studies Program. And he's been talking with us about inequality. Nice to see you, Jeffrey. Great to see you, Jerome. Um, how bad did things get in the last year, Paul, uh, when it comes to, you know, we hear all about uh, economic growth and Donald Trump has made a trillion dollars for everybody. Uh, that doesn't seem to be working out for most people, though. That's right. We're an anti-poverty organization, first and foremost. But what we've realized over the last few years that is that if you don't address structural inequality, you're not going to help the poor. Over the last year... 82% of the wealth that got generated went to the top 1%, while the poorest half of humanity, that's about 3.7 billion people, got nothing. So it's been a very bad year for the global poor in terms of uh, being the beneficiaries of the wealth that got created. When you hear Donald Trump talk like that, he's talking um, as if everybody is in, is in the stock market right now, and the stock market is going up. Therefore, everybody is getting wealthy. That's a... Uh, that's how, you know, when you think about it, that's really wild. It is. And he campaigned on the basis that he was going to unrig the rules. He was going to make things more fair for working Americans. And he's done precisely the opposite since he came into office. So a lot of the benefits that are accruing in the stock market are going to already wealthy corporations while working Americans are essentially stuck. And he's not doing them any favors. Um, Jeffrey, what do you think about the, the trends here in inequality? Well, I uh, first of all want to congratulate again the work Oxfam does because um, they remind us on an annual basis not just of the scale of inequality in the U.S. and in the world, but the fact that it is rapidly getting worse. Um, and and so this is a tremendous public service, and it helps us um, call into question some of the most fundamental ideas we live under. And so if I could mention from a political point of view, um, one of the questions Oxfam is really um, highlighting for us is um, if, if we really believe or if we fancy ourselves to be a civilized people um, and if we really believe we live in a democracy, um, how is it possible um, that fundamental issues of equality, justice, fairness, basic human dignity get pushed to the side? Um, and how extreme does inequality have to become before we say there's something uncivilized about us? Um, at what point, how, how few is the number? I, I think uh, Paul hasn't mentioned it yet, but something like 60 people in the world um, have as much wealth as the entire bottom half of the world. And in the United States, Supposedly, it's three people. At what point do we assign the word obscene to this kind of inequality? And then second, secondly, um, how can we be a democracy and at the same time have rising inequality? There's something wrong with that picture. Um, and what's wrong with it and what I focus a lot of my work on is that what we are is a democracy that is captured by oligarchs. And this is not just in the United States. I'm, I'm, I mean, set aside authoritarian countries where people have almost no uh, opportunity to try to participate and, and get a better shake in the world for themselves. Um, but in the democracies around the world, all of them have been moving in the same direction 
which is toward greater inequality um, and rising and a hollowing out of the middle class. Um, and what this calls into question around the world is what is the fundamental meaning of democracy if this is happening? I am always staggered these days by the number of billionaires who are in power. Uh, there's the president and in this state we have billionaires running against each other for governor and in South Africa, the new uh, the new leader of South Africa is going to be an extremely rich man who is coming into power. Uh, they, it's um, uh, it's something the report talks about, uh, Paul. It's it's uh, it's it's amazing how much uh, money is in government. We're seeing an exponential growth in the number of billionaires. We're now at the rate over the last year that we measured of creating a new billionaire every two days, every 48 hours. Think of all the buildings they're going to have to build in Davos just to accommodate them all. But um, it's actually, Jeffrey, and thank you, couldn't agree more, we're down to 42. 42 people have the same wealth as the poorest half of the planet, so less than a busload. And, you know, people ask us, why does an anti-poverty organization care so much about whether a few people are wealthy? Well, when it reaches that level of disproportion, when one person has $100 billion worth of wealth and can literally change the, the fate of a nation or, or the, the, the stability of a currency, uh, should they choose to, you have a structural problem. You have a problem where people aren't actually accessing the resources to lift themselves out of poverty, to take that opportunity for which the United States is so famous. And you're absolutely right, Jeffrey. It is about a captured economy where corporations aren't actually being rewarded for innovation, for creating better products, and for outcompeting others in creating a better marketplace. They're competing to rig the rules. Between 2009 and 2015, the 50 biggest U.S. companies spent about $352 million lobbying on tax. For that, they got $423 billion in tax breaks. What does that mean? It means every dollar that they spent lobbying on tax issues, they got about $1,200 back in tax breaks. That's not rewarding innovation. That's just rewarding who has the best lawyers. And also, Paul, I would throw in that no one lobbied on behalf of the middle class or the poor during all of that because they're a they don't have the resources to influence uh, government they only get to vote once every two or four years and and uh, second they don't have an entire organized lobbying industry of people who do nothing but work around the clock around the year um, to try to um, push more resources upward um, and so uh, everybody has one person, one vote, but that's not the only kind of power that operates in the system. In fact, it's not even probably the most important kind of power that mm -hmm. operates. And we can only explain these outcomes in what are purportedly democracies by understanding that we only live in a partial democracy. We live in an oligarchy combined with a democracy. And the question is, um, how far does it have to go before it becomes extremely dangerous um, and extremely destabilizing. We're already seeing the signs of destabilization domestically and internationally. Um, and if we continue on this track, um, it's, history teaches us uh, that tremendous inequality carries with it um, very dire consequences socially.
I'm talking with Jeffrey Winters from Northwestern University and Paul O'Brien from Oxfam America, and we're talking about some of the ideas in the Oxfam report, Reward Work, Not Wealth. It comes out annually every year. The world leaders go to Davos. Oxfam issues this report, and and Oxfam goes itself and uh, does some talking at Davos. Um, (laughs) I hear there's a lot of protesters at Davos this year. Um, What what kind of reaction does the organization get when you go to Davos there, uh, Paul? You know, the one I'm really curious about is the reaction that Donald Trump is going to get when he arrives there. And I think he's going to get a real surprise. Um, We have been involved in the conversation at Davos, and we're sort of surprised each year that they invite us back because we remind them of the problems with structural inequality and that they own a large part of the problem and they need to be part of the solution. And they keep inviting us back. I think he's going to be quite surprised by that. I think Donald Trump thinks he's walking into a place where unaccountable elites, particularly in the economic sense, uh, are going to be sitting around smugly talking about how they've managed to rig the rules and basically profit from the global economy. And I think what he's going to walk into is a very serious conversation about how this actually isn't good for anyone. That in the end of the day, if they want their children and grandchildren to live in a stable world, they're going to have to do something themselves in order to address uh, what's going on in the world right now because the lack of structure in the economy, the lack of regulation over marketplaces is actually killing opportunity and over the long term is going to kill wealth. So we think, for example, they're going to have interesting conversations about the fact if you actually had a 1.5 billionaire's tax, meaning a tax just on their wealth, not their income, you could put every child into school in the global economy. Think how stabilizing that would be. So I think that's one surprise he's going to get. It's not going to be as smug as he'd like in that respect. But the other one, and perhaps even more interesting, is the the conversations he's going to have with the women leaders who are there. We've had a phenomenally interesting year, somewhat traumatic in terms of what we've had to read in the newspapers and see about what men have been doing. But you've got a group of women leaders there who are determined to have a more serious conversation about the links between economic inequality and gender inequality. They know full well that women have been on the wrong end of just about all the economic equations that the global economy has been pushing. They know that in 100 countries... Women are not allowed to do the same jobs as men. In 155 countries, the laws are written explicitly in that way. They know that of a $74 trillion global economy, there's about $10 trillion that just isn't being measured because it's unpaid care work, which is the lion's share, is being done by women. So I'm watching the social media that's going on there and the conversations between women at Davos. And they are talking about having a world which is led by peacemakers, not conquerors, not this zero-sum, testosterone-filled, for us to win in our market, others have to lose elsewhere. They want a different conversation. And I think Donald Trump is going to run smack bang into that conversation and get a bit of a surprise. Our neighbor to the north, Justin Trudeau, uh, has already spoke at Davos, and he had a thing or two to say about gender inequality. And uh, here's Justin Trudeau. I'd like to focus tonight on a fundamental shift that every single leader in this room can act on immediately, one that I've made a central tenet of my leadership. I'm talking about hiring, promoting, and retaining more women. And not just because it's the right thing to do or the nice thing to do, but because it's the smart thing to do. In Canada, like all over the world, 
Much of the economic and labor force growth we've experienced over the last many decades is because of women entering into and changing the workforce. But there is still so much room for improvement and such enormous benefit still to be had. That's Justin Trudeau speaking at Davos about uh, gender inequality and something that leaders could do right now would be to appoint people that uh, were women to their offices, as he's done in, in Canada with his, his cabinet. Yeah, um, I, I would point out a couple of things. One is, first of all, um, inequality in the world is definitely highly gendered. Um, and this is not only across populations, but even among the ultra-wealthy that uh, that Paul was describing. A very small proportion, under 10% of all the billionaires and centimillionaires um, in the world are women. So, in fact, the wealthy are the most gender unequal group of all. Um, not that I'm really pushing for gender equality among billionaires. Um, that's not a very high priority. But it just is indicative of the fact that even among the most powerful, women are excluded. Um, but let's also point out, and I know that Oxfam uh, accentuates this as well, that the browner and the blacker you are in the world, starting in the United States and radiating outward, the poorer you are. Um, that's just another part of the layered um, exclusion on top of exclusion. Um, and uh, just a quick comment on the fact that Oxfam keeps getting invited back to Davos. Um, that's nice, but it's also a sign they don't fear you. Um, they're not afraid. Uh, why not invite uh, someone who's criticizing the hell out of you? Um, makes you look good. Makes you look open-minded. Um, they're not afraid of Oxfam because... The poor in the world and in the United States aren't organized. If they were organized, um, Oxfam would not be invited to Davos, and Davos probably wouldn't meet. This is a festival of the ultra-rich who are celebrating their tax cuts, celebrating their power, um, and the entire meeting is an obscenity. Um, and, and so uh, I'm glad Oxfam is there, and I'm glad you're agitating, um, but they're not afraid. Paul, Paul O'Brien from Oxfam. Um, I like the point in, in, and the spirit of the point in the sense that we, what we do need – Jeffrey's is entirely right. What we need in the end of the day is a global movement because we're not going to see large-scale structural change unless it politically matters, unless it economically hurts. And that is about numbers, either in voting or in buying. And we are part of a whole group of organizations that is trying to foster that global movement. So the ultimate proof, he's, he's right. When you see movements on the streets of Nairobi or um, any of the southern capitals where extreme inequality has taken off, we'll know we've really uh, been part of something whose time has come. But – as an organization that is rights-based, and by that we mean we try to shift the views of the powerful public and private institutions around the world, governments and uh, the, the wealthy, we do like them to meet because we know that from those conversations there are going to be different people at different parts of the spectrum. We, we have pretty decent evidence that we do frighten some of them. Um, some of them we've taken some money from, and we've gotten the calls afterwards as they've asked us, could we calm down our extreme inequality campaigning because it's getting a little hot. Let's remember that Bill Gates has been one of the richest uh, men on the planet for quite some time. He's also been a generous supporter of Oxfam, and we've agreed perhaps to disagree on how publicly we should challenge him 
uh, to to not just give so much of his money away, which we totally applaud, but to be part of structural solutions that end up with a world where he doesn't have the kind of wealth he has, because that's what we're asking for publicly. That kind, of, he's actually, I think, quite enlightened in hearing our critique and continuing to support us. But we've had difficult conversations with some of them, and if we don't have those forums, we don't have the the, the place we can go to to cause a little bit of fear. Jeffrey, yeah, just uh, I, I think those are great points, Paul. Um, and and I, again, I don't want to get into a debate with you because I think we're on the same side of of the issues. I would just add one thing, which is there's a because Donald Trump is is in power and the Republicans control the United States at the state and the and the national level. There's this sense that you know this is really the Republicans, you know, gone wild, um, and. I, I just must say that uh, your own organization's reporting has shown very clearly that uh, inequality increased almost as rapidly under the Democrats as it did under the Republicans. It increased under Barack Obama, including when the Democrats controlled uh, the Congress as well as the executive branch. Um, so, you know, if we think of the Republicans as organized selfishness, um, which is what they are, um, then the Democrats are organized selfishness with guilt. Um, but, you know, the, the Republicans' view is uh, the reason you're poor, it's your own fault. Um, and the Democrats say, mm, it might not be your own fault, but we'll blow on it a little bit and make it feel better. Um, so there's not a massive difference between the Democrats and the Republicans. We just need to be really clear about that. And I, and I think that gets to something you said right at the outset, Paul, which is that the problems are fundamentally structural. That is, and Americans need to understand this, our democracy is designed to benefit the few. That's how it's built. That's how it's structured. And the kind of politics it's going to take to really spread opportunity, to spread wealth, to spread access to health care and so on is a very different kind of politi politics than we currently have. Could I offer one comment on that? Sure, Paul. Thank you. So I, in the main, I agree with it. And I certainly agree as a nonpartisan organization that the Democrats are not the solution and the Republicans are not the problem. Mm -hmm. That having been said, there is a profound difference between the way that Donald Trump approaches a rules-based international order and the way President Obama did. Mm -hmm. And we see that manifest for us on the inequality front in the following ways. Obama didn't do enough for the global poor by any stretch, and he didn't do enough for the American poor. But what he did not just talk about but put into place and urge Congress to legislate was a rules-based order in which there was greater transparency and greater accountability for the institutions that really had power. I'll give you one example. He required his own institutions, the SEC and so on, and he pushed in Congress a law that required companies that make deals with developing country governments to be very transparent about them. They had to publish the terms of those deals. No backroom handouts under that legislation and administrative action. The first thing President Trump did when he came into power was mm -hmm. to pass an executive order saying, no way, I can't allow I, 
I won't be able to support American companies to do backroom deals if we have to be this transparent. And what he basically wanted to catalyze is a race to the bottom where we could get back to secret deal making and transactions that were in the short term interest of one company, but would fundamentally undermine the structure of those economies where those deals were being made. The new reality for an anti-poverty organization like ours is it's not aid that's the real money that lifts people out of their out of poverty. It's their own local economy's ability to function. And when that money is all being stolen by companies who don't have to report on it, we have a massive poverty problem. And Donald Trump's administration is fostering that by insisting on secrecy and encouraging a race to the bottom. Paul O'Brien is with Oxfam America's uh, vice, he's vice president for policy and campaigns there. And we're talking about their annual report on inequality. And Jeffrey Winters from Northwestern is with us as well. We'll be back with more after the break. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm talking today with Jeffrey Winters from Northwestern's Equality, Development, and Globalization Studies Program, and Paul O'Brien. He's with Oxfam America, where he's vice president for policies and campaigns. We're talking about their report that they issue uh, annually on inequality right during the Davos uh, meeting in Switzerland, and the report is called Reward Work, Not Wealth. And I wanted to Focus on that sentiment here for a moment, Paul. Rewarding work, not wealth. What are you talking about? We're talking about the fact that most of the money in the global economy is going in the direction of the already wealthy. 82% of the wealth that was generated last year went to the top 1%. At the same time, we're not raising our minimum wages. We're not creating dignified jobs in the United States or elsewhere, which would happen from a better structured global economy so and a better structured U.S. economy. You know, it was it surprised to read in the report about some of the countries that are, are manufacturing country, company, countries and they don't even adhere to the minimum wages mostly. They have minimum wages. They just don't pay them. Yeah. Um, so – a lot of the countries where manufacturing has moved to are basically not democracies, right? So people, workers are not able to organize and they're not able to agitate um, in their own favor. Um, so uh, they don't put minimum wage policies in place and one of the ways they're able to attract manufacturing to their location um, is by paying people um, wages that folks here um, couldn't possibly make um, and survive on. One of the things though, and I, I like the idea of raising the question of minimum wage because this points out something, which is um, basically there are two ways we can decide who gets what in society and the world. One way is the ideology of markets. Markets will just decide. Jobs will go to the lowest bidder wage-wise in the world or in the US um, or we can decide that um, we have certain thresholds that below which someone cannot go. So the minimum wage is a perfect example of this. We've decided over 
more than a century and a half of debate and struggle in the United States that we won't just let wages go down to the very lowest bidder in society. We put a minimum wage in place. And what this signifies is that there are two ways we can decide who gets what. We can just say the market decides or we can say we decide through policies. We decide through how we're going to make access to education, to health care, to where you live, to safety, to security, all those things we can decide democratically. We can debate it as a matter of policy and society. Um, Paul, we wanted to get your uh, response to kind of what's going on with uh, with with poverty and with uh, the minimum wage. Yeah, thanks. Um, our concern in all of the places that we're working in around the world is that the working poor are essentially stuck. Uh, we work with women in Vietnam working in garment factories who literally can't live with their children. We work with poultry workers in the United States who literally have to stand on the line wearing a diaper because their bosses won't allow them to go to the toilet. We're working with hotel workers in Canada and the Dominican Republic, women who are afraid to report cases of sexual harassment because they know they're going to lose their jobs. So what's going on for the working poor is that they don't have either a global economy or a regulatory environment that's protecting them and giving them the chance to lift themselves from poverty, while much of the wealth that is being accrued in this economy is going to the people who are now at Davos. You know, it seems like there, in to go to you, there's two ways to do this analogy. You can either uh, take money from the rich through taxes, or you can push up from the bottom with a bigger minimum wage. And, uh, you know, it seems like neither one of those is going on. Right. Uh, it's it's a very hard struggle in the United States to get, for example, a $15 um, minimum wage. Uh, and even if people were at $15, they're not living high on the hog, right? They're, they're just basically able to make ends meet at $15. Um, the other end of it has actually been moving in the opposite direction. That is um, – Around the world, taxes on corporations and the ultra-wealthy have been going down, not up. That's an expression – so both ends of that spectrum are an expression of the same kind of power. That is, the, the, what goes with wealth is power and that power gets expressed through setting agendas in societies, through – funding campaigns. And earlier, you had, I think you had mentioned, you know, that uh, all the leaders of countries seem to be themselves billionaires. Um, there's a political scientist in the United States named Nick Carnes, who's done work to show that basically to run for office at any level in the United States, you've got to be rich. Um, and in fact, so, so our very representative institutions are disproportionately um, representing the rich as persons who are there, it brings in their viewpoint, it brings in um, their agenda. One of the things I was interested in the Oxfam report was people's attitudes towards uh, how much of a different income the CEO has than uh, the regular worker on the floor. And in, in you did it with different countries like Spain and the United States and uh, other places. And everybody is completely deluded about how much their, their CEOs make. It's, 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 it's a much more than you, you would possibly expect. 
Yes, and it's well known that in general people are deluded about how unequal their economies are. There's quite a few famous studies when you ask people who do you think owns most of the wealth in your country? People just have it way off. They don't know that the top 1% in the United States owns more wealth than the bottom 90% combined. They don't know that 1% owns 40% of the country's wealth, the highest share in the last 50 years, or they own 40% of stocks. They don't know the, 10, the top 10% owns 84% of the stocks. So people are living in a world, you know, this is the, the American dream idea, like I have a fair shot at it. To, to to build a national conversation here, to build conversations in the countries around the world where we work, we have to first give people a shared sense of the problem and that we're not anti-wealth, we're not anti-markets. What we care about is people living in poverty being able to get the opportunity to do something about it. But for that to happen in this unstructured economy, we've got to be talking about inequality. Jeffrey Winters? Yeah, um I had also mentioned a moment ago that uh, this kind of inequality eventually uh, produces all kinds of pathologies um, in societies. Everything from uh, breakdowns of governments to uh, civil wars, um, oppression between groups that are different in society. One way that we've seen this play out in the United States is you basically have a hollowing out middle class and you have – an angry white base for Donald Trump. And what's fascinating is who they've decided to blame. Um, they've decided to blame trade, which means those poor people who aren't getting minimum wage somewhere else, they're the problem. Or they've decided to blame immigrants and black and brown people in the United States, to which most of them respond, you've got to be joking, you know, that we're the problem and we're the source of, of your declining living standards. Um, so even being able to frame the politics in a way that gets clarity in the way that you were just saying a moment ago, Paul and, uh, uh, and Jerome, there's a long way to go to understand the source of the problem. Jeffrey Winters is professor of comparative politics and political economy at Northwestern University. He's founder and director of Northwestern's Equality Development and Globalization Studies Program, and he's the author of the book Oligarchy. Nice to talk with you again, Jeffrey. Thank you, John. And thanks for joining us, Paul O'Brien from Oxfam America. He's vice president for policy and campaigns. The latest Oxfam report, which we've been talking about here, is Reward Work, Not Wealth. It's available online. And uh, thanks for all your work on inequality there, Paul O'Brien. Thanks, John. Tomorrow on Worldview, we are going to talk with an old friend, Gretchen Helfrich, who hosted Odyssey for many years, is going to drop by, and she is going to talk about a film series she's putting on uh, with theologians and philosophers drawing lessons from uh, movie classics. Hope you can join us tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Gal Lee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance, Mike Gilmore for engineering, and Daniel Musisi for curating our music. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.